Alrighty, yeah, today we're going to walk through the first seven verses of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. But before we begin, I'd like to share with you a story uh, from when I was about nine years old. See, I was born into a legacy of faith. I was born into a family of believers. My grandparents were believers, my parents were believers, and they passed the faith down to me. And growing up uh, in a family of believers, I had many opportunities to hear the gospel and learn about Jesus. Um, But there's one that I remember that really has stuck with me all these years. I was in church. It was a Sunday. And I don't know if you were like me as a kid, but I had a lot of trouble sitting still. I know it's hard to imagine. Those of you who know me well. I had trouble sitting still through a whole church service. And so I would try to come up with ways to entertain myself. And uh, so I would basically try to mess with my brother and sister. I have an older, older brother, younger sister. And I would try to mess with them to just give myself a little entertainment during the service. And after a while, my parents came up with a genius way of fixing this. They said, you know what, we're going to sit Zach, little Zach. Well, big Zach to me, I suppose. My dad, me, my mom, and my little sister. And they'll be separated. There's no way that they can get into trouble or distract the people around them. And I quickly realized that I could reach around my mom's back and, like, pull my sister's hair and then look away. Or look, I was probably looked down at a Bible or something extra holy. And I would reach around my dad's back and I would poke my brother and then just look away. And it was very amusing. It was very, it was very entertaining to me. My father didn't find it as funny <laughs> as I did. And so after, on a particular Sunday, he leaned over to me and he said, you know what, Jordan, for every time I have to tell you to sit still during this service, you're going to get 10 minutes of timeout. And timeout in our house meant you stood in a corner silently just staring at you know the walls, wishing you weren't there. By the end of the church service, he had told me to stop 11 times, (laughs) which is incredible. That's my record. And the church service ends, we get in the car, and I'm just crying, just bawling, wailing in the back seat, just waiting for the judgment that I knew was coming. And so we got home, and my dad said, go wait for me in my room which is something I never wanted to hear. So go wait for me in my room, and I'll be in there in a second. So I sit there just crying and crying, thinking about the situation I had gotten myself in. I mean, I couldn't sit still for an hour in a church service. How in the world was I going to stand in a corner for almost two? It was like an eternity to me. Well, I heard my dad coming down the hall. And when he got to the doorway, he did something I didn't expect. He reached into his pocket and he pulled out, he pulled out a little Snickers bar, a little frozen one. You ever had these frozen? They're delicious. They hurt my teeth now, but when I was a kid, man, they kind of force you to savor them if they're frozen. And he took it. And he threw it to me on the bed. And I remember just being so confused. 
I was in shock. I was sitting there and I was like, maybe he's throwing it to himself. Like he doesn't want to carry it all the way and he's just going to throw it and like he'll get it back. I don't, maybe it's a test. I don't know. I'm like freaking out. And he says something to me that I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, Jesus doesn't give us the punishment we deserve. Instead, he forgives us because he loves us. You're free. And as a kid being told, you're free, it was like, yes! Like, hallelujah, you know? <laughs> My father saw an opportunity to remind me of the gospel, and he took it. Rather than the wrath I had earned, I received grace. In our text this morning, Paul is nearing the end of his letter to the church in Corinth. You know, the letter's been full of guidance and correction for the church there. Uh, lessons on, on marriage, on divisions in the church, on spiritual gifts. But now Paul is going to remind them of the gospel. So let's start in chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now at first pass, Paul says something kind of interesting here, um, something kind of strange. He says, let me remind you of the gospel. I mean, you remind someone of a meeting, right? You remind someone to put on sunscreen. You even remind someone of your birthday, right? Hey, my birthday's coming up soon. You know, get cash, debit cards, no clothes. Like, we remind people of facts, of, of events, of things like that. But to remind them of the gospel, I mean, he's writing this letter to Christians, right? Had they forgotten the good news? But to remind here, I think, means more than just restating facts. When Paul says, let me remind you of the gospel, he wants to refocus their minds on the truths of what God has done. It means to allow the truth of what God has done for us in Christ to once again break through to our hearts and recenter us on him. That was Paul's hope for them in this letter. And it's my hope that you too this morning would be re-centered on what God has done for you in Jesus. I mean, the truth is that we all need to be reminded of the gospel, right? I know that I do. We live in a broken world, and every day we hear alternative truths, <coughs> lies, and deception. We're confronted with the world every day. Even our hearts can challenge what God has said to be true. I remember it. in Genesis it tells us that in the garden the serpent asked Eve, did God really say not to touch the fruit of the tree? One of the favorite tactics of the devil is to try to peel us away from our hope in Christ by casting doubt on what God has said is true. The devil wants to cast doubt on our faith. We hear things like, you're not good enough. Or, you're too far gone for God to forgive. 
or even if you were really saved, you wouldn't keep doing that. These kind of hurt to even say. It's like you just feel the weight, the room is just the air's been sucked out of the room. We need to be reminded of the gospel often. I mean, that's why we're here, right? We're taking time out of our day, out of our morning, out of our weekend to come here and to, as a community and to crack open a Bible and to be reminded of the hope that we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I was encouraged this last week. Um, on Sunday nights, Marcy and I helped teach the young adult group um, at the Three Rivers location. And there's about I don't know, 20, 25 youth who come to that. And we basically, you know, we do praise and prayer just like we do here. And we open our Bibles and we ask this question before we get to kind of a structured lesson, if you can even call it that. We get pretty out of control there. But um, before we even attempt what our lesson is for the day, we ask, you know, have you guys read your Bibles? Did you read anything interesting that you want to share? And oftentimes, especially the last couple of weeks, we spend the whole time on that. We never really even get to, like, you know, whatever book we're going through or whatever lesson we have planned, just because these young adults are reading their Bibles and they want to share what God's showing them or they have questions about what they're reading. Um, it's kind of the highlight of my week. And I've always been a little bit bummed because it's on Sundays and I come to church, I'm like, yeah, gospel high. Then we go to young adult group, it's like, yeah, double gospel high. And then it's like the week, you know, it's like I got to wait till Sunday. This week, uh, one of the young adults asked, you know, what if we met during the week and we had this discussion about what we read in our Bibles that week and we could just have a gathering where there wasn't a big agenda or anything. We just got together and uh, talked about what we read in our Bibles. I was like, yes, please. So we got we got to have our first one on Thursday, um, and that was that was exciting. We got into all kinds of crazy stuff. I'm not going to derail right now, but it, it was cool. So we gather to be reminded, right? We gather, we read our Bibles to remember what God has done for us. Even the sacraments serve to remind us of what God has done for us in Christ. Think of baptism. Let your baptism remind you of God's washing away your sins and giving you new life. When you think about your baptism or you witness a baptism, it's an opportunity for you to remember that you've been washed, your sins have been washed away, and you are clean. Or communion, Lord's Supper. Let communion... Remind you of Christ's body broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. When we share that meal, it's an opportunity for us to remember Jesus' death on our behalf. And so it's easy to understand why the believers in Corinth needed reminding. They had begun to drift from their foundation of faith. They had begun to drift from being centered on Christ. Paul's hope here is to remind them of the truth that he preached to them, which they had received, in which they stand, and by which they are being saved. Paul says, the gospel I preach to you. What is the gospel? When we use the word gospel, what do we mean by that? 
oftentimes when I'll ask the young adult group, someone will be like, good news, all right, let's go home. Like, yeah, it is the good news, absolutely. That's the literal definition of it. Um, But the gospel is the truth of what God has done for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Gospel is the truth of what God has done for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the message. Speaking to the church in Corinth, Paul says, the gospel which you received. Now he makes kind of three statements here that that tell us something about this, this message, this truth of the gospel. The first one is, which you received. That tells us that the gospel comes from outside of us, not from within, right? It's not something we can look into our heart on a desert island and and figure out, right? The gospel is something that we're told that's shared with us. It's a message that is received in faith. Paul's even going to say a little bit later, what I received I also passed down to you. This gospel in which you stand. So the gospel becomes our foundation, right? It becomes a truth that we stand upon, that we live our life on. And lastly, the gospel by which you're being saved. The gospel is our present hope for salvation. So we see that the gospel is not something that's just believed um, when we're converted or when we first believe. It's not something we graduate from, right, that we can leave and then we go on to like something else. No, the gospel is, is where our home is made. It's important to be reminded of that and to live in that. Now Paul's going to remind them. Let's turn to the first half of verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. The truth of what God has done for you in Christ is of first importance. Everything we know and believe rests on this foundation. It is your hope. And Paul lived this reality, right? I mean, think of his biography. Think of the things Paul did and experienced in his life. His biography reads something like this. After he's converted, he experiences hard traveling. He's beaten, arrested, imprisoned, shipwrecked, snakebite, imprisonment, beaten, house arrest, imprisonment, and so on. Like an athlete running a race, Paul shows us what it means that the gospel is of first importance. His life reflected that, and now he writes to the church in Corinth that message once again. Now what Paul is about to go into here is the content of our faith. This is the earliest written teaching we have about Jesus' resurrection. This letter was written in the 50s, before the Gospels probably. And so this would have been a very early... Um, this section here, what am I trying to say? This section is forms an early Christian creed that would have been written in the first years following Jesus' ascension. And so... Just because it's early doesn't make it more true. It's true because it's true. But it's kind of cool to read what they would have passed down, what the disciples would have told other people, what the apostles would have handed down. 
Paul insists that these words are more important than anything else. So let's unpack them a little bit. Beginning with the second half of verse 3. That Christ died for our sins in in accordance with the Scriptures. Now this is one of the most boiled down gospel statements in all of Scripture. Christ died for our sins. Why does Paul start here? Paul starts here because it's Jesus' death that paid for your sins. It's through his death that you are freed from sin and given new life. The punishment you were owed, that you deserved, that you earned, was taken from you and placed on Christ on the cross. Romans 6 tells us that the wages of sin is death, right? A lot of us have heard this verse many times, but it took me years to think wages, like I earned that, you know? The death that I earned was taken and placed on Christ on the cross. Jesus did what you could not so that you could be freed from sin and follow him. Christ died for your sins. Paul goes on that he was buried. And I think often we, like when we read a creed or something like that, it's kind of like Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Like it's just like, da-da-da-da-da. And we kind of skip over the buried. We kind of roll right through it. But I think it's important. Christ being buried is important because Christ really died. He was really buried. He was a corpse that had to be disposed of. Scripture tells us that they prepared his body in the traditional manner with linens, cloth linens, wrapped around him, soaked in spices. And the spices are there because bodies smell bad when they decay. They placed him in a new tomb. He was buried. Paul continues that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I should get one of those Gatorade, like squeeze boxer bottles or something. We'll see if it's in the budget. All right. Um, That he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In the morning on the third day, a group of women who knew Jesus went to his tomb with spices they had prepared to anoint him with. But he was not there, right? An angel calls out to them and says, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Death could not hold him. God had brought him back to life. We know this because in Acts 2, Peter is speaking to the Jews at Pentecost. And sometimes I think because Acts is another book, right? We like... We don't get the timeline exactly, but this is like 10 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. And the same Peter who had denied Jesus is now has the Holy Spirit and is getting up. And this is what he says to his, his fellow Jews. He says, Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. 
In raising Christ from the dead, God displayed his power over death. He let the world know that death did not win, sin did not win, but God won. Jesus' resurrection tells us that it is finished and that Christ's death was effective in dealing with our sin. Your sins have been paid for. Then after he was raised, Jesus appears to many people. Returning to our text in 1 Corinthians, these post-resurrection accounts of Jesus were part of what was passed down by the apostles, starting in verse 5. Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now this section is important. Paul wants them to know that their faith is based on actual historical events. Jesus' life, death, and crucially his resurrection are verified by a multitude of witnesses. And these witnesses can be spoken to when this letter was read. It's like Paul saying, hey, most of them are still alive. Go ask them. Go verify this. Now, Paul is saying this probably about 20 years after Jesus rose from the the dead. He's saying, I didn't make this up. Go verify it. Now, what if I told you that when Y2K happened, when the year flipped from 1999 to 2000, (laughs) that in California all the computers came alive and attacked us, And we had to take them down with water guns and water hoses, fire hoses. What would you do? You'd be like, I don't think so, but let me look into it because Jordan's a trustworthy guy and he wouldn't lie from the front. Quickly, you would realize, after talking to anybody, that that didn't happen. Paul Paul is confident in the resurrection because it actually happened. And it can be verified by a multitude of witnesses. When I practiced this for Marcy, she was like, I don't know about this computers coming alive part. I was like, well, if anybody's drifting, they're going to be right back in. So welcome back if you're drifting. But there's a deeper truth present here for us. We don't have a faith based on an idea, a theory, or a philosophy. Our faith isn't based on a dude who went out in the wilderness and came back with a book that we should base our eternity on. No, our faith isn't based on one person's experience or revelation, but it's based on a person, Jesus. We worship the eternal Son of God, who is also the Word made flesh. Jesus came into our world so that he might save us. And he did. In Philippians 2, Paul speaks to this. He's encouraging the church in Philippi to serve one another, and he says, follow the example of Christ, who by his incarnation coming into the flesh served us. Hear this. He says, Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen? In Paul's time, they were eyewitnesses to what Jesus had done. And we are their descendants in the faith. We are also witnesses by reminding others of the gospel. I want to leave you with some encouragement today. The first encouragement is simple. Just to be reminded. We can all remember what it was like to be a child waiting for punishment. Sometimes even as Christians, we carry the guilt and the shame of not measuring up to God's holy standard. But in Christ, God has done something that we did not expect. Like my father throwing a frozen Snickers to me, the gospel finds us in our brokenness and gives us hope. That hope is that though we are sinners, Christ died for us. He lived the life we could not, and now through faith, His righteousness is ours. When Christ died, you and all your sin died. And when Christ was brought back to life, you too were given new life. You're free. And that's way better than a frozen Snickers bar. I hope that this morning you were reminded of the gospel. I hope that by hearing the good news, God would restore to you the joy of your salvation. And that that would wash over you. Lastly, I pray that that joy would overflow into the lives of those around you. Remind someone of the gospel. It could be something simple, but remind them of the gospel. My dad could have just simply said, hey, you're free. Get out of here. I don't want to deal with you. I'm too tired to mess with you. But instead, he, he reminded me of the gospel. Look for opportunities to share the unexpected love of God who is delighted to give you a gift you could never earn. Who in your life needs to be reminded of Jesus' love for them? If they know Jesus, remind them. And if they don't know Jesus, tell them. It's like telling someone there's cake in the break room, right? Oh, there's cake. What? There's cake? This is good news about Jesus. It's something worthy being reminded of. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for us this morning that we would be reminded of everything you've done through your son, Jesus. Pray that we would think about and be fixed on his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that you didn't leave us in our sin and in the pit, Lord that you sent your son to give us new life. I pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. And that that joy would overflow as we look for opportunities to remind others of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.